0: Again, this week, before moving on, I want to, um, again, employ the, the slinky method. It may not be a method that's familiar to you, but you know what a slinky is. It's that thing that goes like this. And Well, the slinky method is you, you feel like you're going in circles and not making any progress, but actually you are. And so we're going to employ that slinky method. We're going to look at some things we looked at last week, but I hope explore them a little bit more deeply. And as we do that, I just want to mention a couple of things before reading this. Paul has been preaching this gospel that he's outlining in Romans for um, at least 20 and probably 25 years. And as he preaches this gospel, as he preaches the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ, that, that cleansing and acceptance and, and renovation, renewal and, and hope, that all of these things come to us not on the basis of who we are or what we do, but solely and completely, entirely on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done, received by faith, offered as a gift. As he preaches this gospel, he runs into this, this question. This is the gospel he's been preaching, and the question that he runs into repeatedly is the question, well, what about the law? What about the law? I don't want to keep you standing too long, but let me just paraphrase it. What about traditional moral values? What about the law? What about doing what's right? And it's that that Paul is responding to. And what he's helping us to understand is our proper relationship to the law as Christians. Our proper a proper understanding of our relationship to the law as Christians. That's what he's dealing with. That's the, resp- the answer that he's, the, that, that's the question that he's responding to. And he's been dealing with it since verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? That's the, the question that he's responding to, and he continues to respond to it in these verses. So read with me at verse 1 of chapter 7. Likewise, my brothers, and here's where the metaphor shifts, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that is, through union with Jesus Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see, again, what it is that you've done to us, for us, help us to see that you've delivered us from the embrace of a tyrant and have delivered us into the embrace of a lover. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When Barb and I were living in uh, Richmond, Indiana, this is going back uh, over 25 years, one of our members Uh, And I were in regular conversation with each other. This went on uh, for years, actually. It's a man who was uh, in his late 30s. He had been repeatedly, physically, and sexually abused by his father. So had his sister. Both of them told repeatedly they would amount to nothing, they would be nothing, they were worthless. The sister married five times. This is a true story. The sister married five times. Each time marrying an alcoholic who was abusive. My friend Burl had an IQ of over 140. In his early 20s, he was a scratch golfer. When I knew him 15 or so years later, he was patching life together with part time jobs, one of which was with our church, weeding the gardens around our buildings. He was a Christian. His sister may have been a Christian as well. She died in her early 50s, a victim of alcohol poisoning. What do you suppose was Burl's deepest struggle? What do you suppose was his deepest struggle? Guilt, shame, embarrassment, deep and deeply rooted feelings of unworthiness. No matter how much we talked, he could not come. To the settled conviction that he was loved. He couldn't. There were moments, there were moments when the dark, oppressive clouds of his conscience, his past, his father, The voices in his ear, the tapes in his brain, there were moments when all of that darkness left him. But most of the time, he was imprisoned by a tyrant. You're not good enough. You can't be good enough. You're worthless. You're not loved. Try harder. Do more. Pedal faster. That's what the law does, friends. That's what the law does. The law condemns. And as long as you seek to meet the law on its terms, it will condemn you. And kill you. And I don't care what the law is. The law that is in view here. Is the law of Moses. It's the ten commandments. It's all of the exposition of the ten commandments. That flows out of the rest of Exodus. And Leviticus. And Numbers. And Deuteronomy. If you seek to meet the law. On the law's terms. You will never measure up. Here's the point. Your relationship to the law must change. Paul's going to tell us in the rest of this chapter that the law is good. We're going to talk about that next week. We'll see it next week. It is your relationship to the law that must change. And if that relationship does not change and you seek to meet the law on its own terms, it will crush you. It will leave you imprisoned. And Paul is saying in these verses, these first six verses of Romans 7, that that is exactly what has happened. Your relationship to the law as a Christian has changed essentially and radically. You know what those two words mean? They come from two Latin words. The first of them is, comes from the word to be. It has to do with the existence, the essence of something. If your relationship to the law doesn't change at its essence, you will be crushed. Radical comes from the word radix. It means root. If your relationship to the law does not change at the root, it will crush you and kill you. It will crush you and kill you. And Paul is saying, that is exactly what has happened for you as a Christian. You have been radically and essentially altered in your relationship to the law. And let me give you three pegs. So you can take notes if you're taking notes, or you can just use them as a memory aid if you're just listening. Three things that you're going to see here there is here the death of an old marriage there is the reality of a new marriage and there is the problem of the surviving husband. There is the death of an old marriage, the reality of a new marriage, and the problem of the surviving husband. So first, the death of the old marriage. This is where we rehearse some things we talked about last week. You have to remember what is in the mind of the Apostle Paul as he writes this. He knows the Jewish mind. Many, if not most of the people in these churches in Rome were Jews or they were Gentiles who were attracted to Judaism, probably in part because Judaism represented a moral code, a lawfulness that stood over against the deterioration and dissolution of the Roman culture, the stuff that's outlined in Romans chapter 1. Paul understood the Jewish mind. And as I said just a minute ago, what is in view here for Paul is the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the exposition that flows out of it. And not only that exposition... Not only what you find in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and the repeating of it in Deuteronomy, but the further application of that law in the life of Israel. There weren't just the Ten Commandments and then all of the other laws in those books, but there were all of these other applications that came from the rabbis. And if you've been around this stuff for any length of time, you may know that there were over 600 regulations pertaining just to the Sabbath commandment. You read your Bibles? Have you ever seen that phrase, a Sabbath day's journey? The rabbis decided that you would be faithful to the restriction forbidding work on the Sabbath day if you, know, if you traveled no more than a Sabbath day's journey. What is that? Six-tenths of a mile. You couldn't go farther than that or you were breaking the fourth commandment. 600 regulations like that pertaining just to the Sabbath. I mean, you think the income tax code is complex. You think tax law is hard to sort out. These people are afraid. Anybody with a sensitive conscience is afraid to leave home because they have no idea if they might be breaking some law. That's what Paul has in mind here. And here are the things that I pointed out to you. In the Jewish mind, obedience to the law gets you in and obedience to the law keeps you in. You need the law to obtain standing with God and you need the law to maintain standing with God. And you know what? That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Do what you're told. Obey the law. And your obedience will earn you standing with God. Do the law, and it will earn you obedience. It will earn you standing, excuse me, before God. Keep the law, and keep on keeping the law, and never violate the law, and you will maintain your standing with God. The law promises life, and if you obey the law, you will get life. What's the problem? The problem is sin, folks. The problem is that once you introduce sin into the equation, that whole formulation collapses under a cloud and weight and burden, and we're at the bottom of what collapses. Once you introduce sin into the equation, sin and law... Make a bad partnership. Here are the other things that we saw last week. We saw, how is this a bad partnership? Why is this a partnership that works to crush and not liberate? Well, because the law exposes sin, right? Romans 3.20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Not only does the law expose or reveal or disclose or bring to mind the awareness of sin, but Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath. It not only reveals sin, but it reminds me that sin must be punished. That's what the law does. Romans 5.20, the law increases trespass. What does that mean? What that means is that specific commands reveal specific sins or trespasses. And so the giving of the law sort of overheats the problem that already exists. What this is, is a, you know, you've, look, the law is a tsunami, okay? But when the tsunami crashes into nuclear reactors, you have a meltdown. That's what the law does. It not only exposes sin and, and reveals wrath, but it actually increases it. It, it exacerbates sin. It, it intensifies it. It heightens it. It makes it even more specific. Paul comes to this in chapter 7 regarding coveting. I can't wait to tell you this story next week. it will bring you back. Paul talks about this. He says in verse 8 of chapter 7, if the law had not said, don't covet, I wouldn't have known coveting. But you see, because the specific command addressed a specific sin, things only get worse. Heightened. Overheated. It reveals things that are hidden. And then the last thing that the law does, the last thing, That the Apostle Paul tells us is that the law brings captivity, it brings bondage, it brings a loss of freedom. Some of you know that one of my favorite movies is the 1979 version Dracula with Frank Langella. Frank Langella, who embodies intelligence, he's handsome, he's witty. He is very smart. He's everything we want, isn't he? And he seduces into captivity. See, when you put law and sin together, the law is no longer a friend. The law is an enemy. If I'm honest about it, rather than saving me, it reduces me to dust. It condemns me. reminded of this by one of the commentators this last week, this incredible scene in Pilgrim's Progress, where Pilgrim and Faithful are making their way along to the city of destruction, from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And Faithful describes being overtaken by another traveler. He sits along the side of the road to rest And this other comes alongside. And Faithful says this of the experience. Do you know Pilgrim's Progress? I'm ashamed. I haven't read it more than I ought to have read it. If you want good gospel, spiritual biography, read Pilgrim's Progress and read it again. This is what Faithful says. So soon as the man overtook me, He was but a word and a blow, for down He knocked me and laid me for dead. But when I was a little come to myself again, I asked wherefore He served me so, why He treated me in this way. And He said, because of my secret inclining to Adam the first. Adam the first. Remember Adam? The one who disobeyed. The one who introduced sin and death and bondage into this world because of my inclining to Adam. Because you see, Adam and I are partners in this. And with that, he struck me another deadly blow on the breast. And beating me down backward, I lay at his feet as dead. But when I came to myself again, I cried mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down yet again. And he would doubtless have made an end of me. But that one came by. And made him stop. Who was that one that made him stop? Asked Christian. I did not know him at first. But as he went by, I perceived the holes in his hands and side. And Christian says to faithful, that man that overtook you was Moses. And he spares none. Neither knoweth he how to show mercy to them that transgress his law. Folks, I have to stop here. And I, I've wrestled with this all week. So I don't know if my inclination to say this is a function of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the business of preaching. Or if it's my own struggle with something that I see happening among Christians. And that is this when we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, seek to call this country back to biblical principles, what principles are we calling this country to? Are we calling this country to morality? Or are we calling this country back to the only message this country has, this this church has? Are we calling this country back to laws, to rules, to better laws, higher laws, stronger laws? What do laws do? They do two things. They incite creativity and they crush. You know what I mean by creativity? Build a fence, build a wall. What do people do? They find a way around it. And what does the law do? On the other hand, it crushes. When we say we're calling people back to biblical principles. What principle? What principle is precious in the church? The only principle that matters, it is this. The law crushes, Jesus sets free. Jesus sets free. The church has to proclaim what the church alone possesses. The law Is Javert. I am the law, Javert said, and the law is not mocked. I'll spit pity back in his face. You see what must happen, and if the church is to be the church in this day and time, the church has to be exceedingly careful. Yes, the government should enact good laws. Yes, government exists to restrain evil. Read Romans 13. Yes, the government, the state exists to do the best it can to order a just society. But the church is distinctive in its message that the law is not enough. The law in prison. And what Paul is saying to us here is that if I am a Christian, I stand in an entirely different relationship to the law. And he uses the analogy of marriage to make this point. Think of a marriage, Paul is saying. Think of a bad marriage. Some of you have lived through bad marriages. You've suffered through bad marriages. On your wedding day, you thought you were marrying one thing. You woke up a week, a month, a year later to find you were married to something entirely different. And you couldn't get out. You were bound by law in that marriage. Think of this in terms of a marriage, the apostle says. The woman is married and the husband dies. She is free to remarry. She is released from legal obligation to stay with that man because the man is dead. He is gone. And who is this husband? Who is this man? And this is where the portrayal is incredibly poignant. Who is this one who is so oppressive? Who is, who is Moses? <laughs> who beats down. You know this drill, don't you? It's never enough. Do you remember the movie Sleeping with the Enemy? Did any of you see that? Right? Beautiful woman, beautiful man. She could never do enough. What she did was never right enough. That's the law. That's the imagery that the Apostle is using. And who is the husband? I want to suggest to you that the husband is Adam. And the husband is sin and death And bondage. This goes all the way back to chapter 5, verse 12, where Adam, the first Adam, is introduced. He is the one to whom we were united, you see. Do you remember? The argument starts there and over the course of the rest of chapter 5 and through chapter 6 and down into chapter 7, Paul is continuing to deal with this issue of our former union with Christ, with Adam, the first Adam, and what has happened to us. And you remember, I trust what happened. What happened because of the work of Christ? Well, this is where this imagery gets very interesting. Paul says, in point of fact, in verse 4, that it isn't the husband who died, but you died. You died to the husband. And you see, that's where the metaphor is shifted. The metaphor is shifted from The technical illustration of a marriage, Paul, I really believe, wants to create a picture of real poignancy here, of the powerlessness that a wife feels when she is in a bad marriage. And he wants to portray for us what it would feel like for her to be in a good marriage. And I've sat with women who have told me I wish she were dead. told you the story I think it's public that's why I'm not ashamed or afraid to share it the wife of a pastor who was asked by her husband at a kind of a high water mark in his professional and pastoral life what is it like to be married to me he asked her what is it like to be married to me she said let me get back to you And six months later, he said, she said to him, I have an answer for your question. He'd forgotten the question. Oh, you remember the question, what is it like to be married to you? I'll tell you what it's like to be married to you. I've thought about it for six months. I can't leave you because I don't have grounds, but if you were a dead man, I'd be a happy woman. That's the picture that Paul wants to paint here. But you see, instead of the husband dying, it is the wife who dies. And just notice that throughout these chapters, Paul says the same kind of thing. Not just with respect to the law. He says this, you died to the law. Your relationship to the law has been radically, intrinsically, essentially, inherently changed and altered. You died to the law. That's exactly what he has said about Adam. In Christ, you died to Adam. It's what he said about sin. In Christ, you died to sin. And it's what he said about slavery. In Christ, you've been set free from slavery. And he's saying the same thing here. When in verses 4 and 5, he says, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. In what sense, in what sense have we died to the law? Well, think about all of those things that the apostle said the law did. The law condemns. The law condemns. Crushes. The law brings terrors of wrath. The law oppresses. The law keeps in bondage. And Paul is saying, You've died. You've died to condemnation. You've died to the terrors of wrath. You've died to the oppressive, never enough quality of the law. How is that possible? It's possible because someone has kept the law for you and has died the death you deserve to die so that you get his lawfulness, he having taken your lawlessness. In the body of Christ you see, You've been united to Christ through his real and physical death. Your whole relationship to law is changed forever. Sin is forgiven. Sin is forgiven. Bondage is broken, and freedom is yours. And Adam the first is no longer your husband. But you've been given to a new husband. And look at who that husband is. You've been given to another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul uses this imagery of union in a fairly provocative way when he describes our former union with Adam bearing the fruit of death. You see that in verse 5. You see, sin arouses passion, passion arouses law, law oppresses, it bears fruit for death, all of this complex of things working together. But now you've been given to another, released from the law, died to that which held us captive so that, verse 4, we might bear fruit for God. You know, some of the commentators actually suggest that it's an untoward image that the Apostle is creating here. It can't really be what he means to think of the church of Jesus Christ as the bride of a loving Savior who lays down his life for his bride who does Philippians 2, who sets aside all of his rights and prerogatives that he might free her from her captivity, that he might free her from her guilt and shame and bring her to himself, that he might wed her to himself and through her bear fruit of righteousness. I'll just tell you, some of the commentators think that's too sexual. But my dear friends, Ephesians 6 describes precisely that picture I said this was tough for you guys and it is we are the bride of Christ by his grace united to him that through that union fruit of righteousness and life and cleansing and hope might be born before God and the whole watching world see you've been freed from a bad husband, and you've been delivered into the embrace of a new husband, a loving husband. I was thinking about this last night. Barb and I were talking about this. I said, "I said, sweetie, which one of those fairy tales is the one where somebody eats the apple?" And and and, and so we're trying to figure out, you know who. Who pricked her finger? And who ate the apple? And who, You know, is it Sleeping Beauty? Is it Snow White? Is it Cinderella? Which one of those precious children's stories? Well, you know, it's all three of them. You ever notice? Do You ever think about this? You ever wonder about this? How is it that in all of their, those stories, there is an evil, oppressive presence? Sleeping Beauty. Dead for a hundred years in a castle, surrounded by thorns, a thicket that nobody can get through, and that that if someone tries, risks his very life. hundred years. How is it there's always an evil presence, the evil stepmother and the evil sisters who keep Cinderella locked in the basement, swimming around in coal dust? No freedom, oppressed. How is it that there's always an evil presence and there is always a handsome, loving deliverer? Folks, you can't escape the beauty, the loveliness, the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It creeps into fairy tales. creeps into my favorite fairy tale. Maid Marian lived under the brutal and oppressive rule and reign of the evil Prince John, and it was Robin Hood, Errol Flynn, to the rescue. You've been given to another, friends. Now, just really quickly, in two minutes... What about the surviving husband? He's still around, isn't he? Isn't he? I know he is because I've chatted with you. Not that husband. I mean the law. I've sat with you, I've listened. I've listened to your despair, your sense of hopelessness. I've listened to your guilt and your shame. I've listened to you say, I'll never do enough. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve this. How can I be this loved? You are. You are. And what do you do with this surviving husband this law that lurks in the shadows, this former husband that wants to oppress and threaten and frighten you, here's what you do. You do what Professor John Nash of Princeton College did. Have you seen A Beautiful Mind? You've got to see it. It's a gospel story. You've got to do what John Nash did you remember at the end of the film when John Nash is coming out of the classroom and he looks over in the corner and he sees his three ever-present friends? I like to think of them as fear, worry, and anxiety. And if I have this right, he says to one of the students, do you see those three people over in the corner? And the student looks in the corner and says, no. And he says, good, I was just checking. They are not real. They are not real. The guilt, the shame, the oppression of this brutal husband is in the past. Forever gone. When my brother-in-law was married, at the rehearsal dinner, as everyone is standing in the chancel of the church, he with his future bride, there is a terrible crash of a table in the balcony. And everyone thought the same thing. It's his ex-girlfriend. she wasn't there and neither is the law it is not there to condemn it is not there to shame it is not there to imprison it is not there to rob you of life I will tell you where the law is and this is where we will go next week. The law is incarnate in Jesus who loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and his neighbor as himself and when you are wed to him the rest of your life by virtue of that joyous union with a new husband is a life given to bearing the fruits of righteousness. Those three people in the corner, they're not there. You have a new husband who's loved you with an everlasting love who will never, never harm you, betray you, or hurt you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, how incredibly wonderful this is. Would you speak to the hearts of your people? Would you repeatedly tell them the truth? That they have died to sin? That they've been freed from bondage? They have died to the threats and judgments? The awful terrors of the law? And they have been raised to newness of life to be remarried to you. Their loving Redeemer husband, may we know, Lord Jesus, that we are forever safe and free in your embrace. We pray in your name. Amen.